happiness. It's just sort of meant to emerge, though often doesn't, somewhere amidst the daily grind. But for something so vital, we rarely focus on what precisely will make us feel good. It's very easy to be so swept up in just the tumult of everyday life, kind of the to-do list, the schedule, that we forget to ask ourselves, am I happy? Can I be happier? In this episode of Brilliant Brains with me, Tim Samuels, we meet Gretchen Rubin, best-selling author of The Happiness Project, who's identified the habits to shift your mood to a better place. Happier people are actually more interested in the problems of other people, and they're more interested in the problems of the world. So when we're happier, that frees us to turn outward. Serotonin, stand by. Brilliant Brains is brought to you by Karmacist Supplements, who have some breaking news on saffron you'll want to hear if, like me, you've got lackluster serotonin and are prone to the joys of gloom. In clinical trials, saffron has been shown to raise levels of serotonin, the happy hormone. And as luck would have it, Karmacist feature a patented form of pure saffron in their mood formulation, which has been designed by scientists at Harvard and Stanford. They've also created supplements for immunity, energy, and something to keep those stress levels in check. There's no excuse for moping anymore. Head over to karmacist.com, where you, yes, you can get 10% off by entering the word brilliant at checkout. Your serotonin will thank you. Back to Gretchen Rubin. Happiness can be such a vague notion to pin down. So to make Gretchen's advice tangible, I gave her a new case study. Meet Jane, late 30s, partner, two kids, New York. Nagging sense she's not as happy as she could be. She feels like maybe she's going through the motions of life, that she doesn't laugh out loud half as much as she once did. And at times it probably tips over into low-level depression. And she lacks a sense of optimism, perhaps, about the future. Jane's wondering, Gretchen, is she unhappy or is this just life? Well, you know, this is a great question. And I think that it's very easy to be so swept up in just the tumult of everyday life, kind of the to-do list, the schedule, that we forget to ask ourselves, am I happy? Can I be happier? Um, And to sort of let everything just wash over us and we would just respond in the moment. Certainly when I started my book, The Happiness Project, that's exactly how I felt. I I just, I I never stopped and asked myself if I were happier or, or even what happiness was. So I think it's, it can be unpleasant to some kind of stop and have these moments of evaluation, but I think it's really helpful to do it. And I think that's one of the reasons that people are drawn to things like New Year's resolutions or milestone birthdays or anniversaries, because they are an opportunity to kind of stop, reflect and say, are there things that I I could change or want to change or should change in order to be happier, healthier, more productive or more creative. And sometimes people object. They say, well, January 1st is just an arbitrary date. Um, But we often need these reminders because it is very easy to just get swept up into daily life and not think about it. So if her question is, is this just daily life? Well, yes, it is just daily life. And then is the question, but can I be happier? The question is, yes, you probably can be happier. Because in my observation, for most people, there is a lot of low-hanging fruit. There's a lot of things we can do as part of our ordinary day without a lot of time, energy, or money that can help us to be happier. So when she wants to take her happiness temperature, if we, if we call it that, 
Is, is happiness the absence of suffering? It's like, well, I, I don't feel depressed today. I'm, I'm not suffering. Is it the presence of, of a particular feeling? Is it almost, I feel like I've got certain chemicals, the sort of serotonin and, and endorphins firing on all cylinders? What, you know, if you're taking your temperature, what, what are the sort of telltale signs to look for? So here's the thing. I started out my career in law and I spent an entire semester arguing about the definition of contract. And if anything, happiness is a more elusive concept to define. There are like 15 academic definitions of happiness. And I actually find it maddening to try to define happiness or like put myself on a scale. I remember when I started the happiness project, a friend of mine who's a scientist said, you should rate yourself on a one to 10 scale, like five times a day. And then you should also have your husband rate you like so that you have like subjective and an objective measure. I was like, nothing would make me less happy than doing that. I think it's whenever I stop and try to think about it, it just dissolves in my head. So I think what's more helpful way to think about it for the lay person, because of course, scientists have to have precise definitions so they know what they're talking about and what they're studying. But I think for the lay person, it's more helpful to think about being happier. However you view happiness, whatever that means to you, if it's calm, it's peace, it's satisfaction, it's well-being, it's joy, it's bliss, whatever it is, it's, it's serotonin, whatever it is, can you be happier? Tomorrow, next month, next year, if you do this thing, do you think that you will be happier? And that is much clearer for most people to understand. What is happiness? That gets very confusing. Am I happy? That's very confusing. Would this doing this action make me happier? Usually people have a pretty good sense of that and how to move themselves in the right direction. So I, I think about it that way. I guess part of it might be getting into the mindset of feeling entitled to be happy and that happiness isn't perhaps a luxury, which is something we might feel at the moment. If you look throughout history and, and in other cultures, what's what's been the kind of prevailing attitude? You know, for for our two hundred thousand years as Homo sapiens, have we been pursuing happiness or is it something that's just been sort of incidental when we're not dealing with survival? Well, that's a complicated question because then you get into definitions and then you get in, it becomes a very, a very difficult thing. And it's actually very difficult to study it across cultures because then again, you get into definitions and you get into values, which is very different because what people value, it becomes very difficult to talk about. But I think what you're getting at probably for, for the, again, for like the lay person and the way the average person thinks about this and this question of, is it a luxury, is this nagging worry that many people feel, which is in a world full of suffering and injustice, is it morally appropriate to even seek to be happier? If I want to spend time thinking about making my life happier, does that mean that I am a spoiled brat? Does that mean that I am not thinking about the things that I should be thinking about? But what's interesting about that question is that the research shows, and I think common experience confirms this if you look around your own life, is that happier people are actually more interested in the problems of other people, and they're more interested in the problems of the world. They volunteer more time, they give away more money, they're more likely to vote, they're more likely to help out if a friend or a colleague or a family member or a neighbor needs a hand. They're healthier, they have healthier habits, they make better team members and better leaders. When we're unhappy, we tend to become defensive and isolated and preoccupied with our own problems because we're not very happy. And so when we're happier, that frees us to turn outward and to think about the problems of other people and the problems of the world. And so I think, you know, sometimes when people worry that it's selfish to want to be happier, 
Um, we should be selfish if only for selfless reasons. And it's back to that cliche that people quote all the time because there really is, is such a, a, a truth to it, which is that you have to put on your own oxygen mask first before you can take care of other people. And I think people repeat that because it captures something very true about our dealings with other people in the world. Mm, that's really true. I mean, I, I know on a sort of day-to-day level, it's when you're you have that burst of happiness that you do think, oh, I should give so-and-so a call. But going back to Jane, if she's not feeling great, the reasons for feeling unhappy, how, how do you kind of delineate between whether it's someone's disposition, what you know, you talk about for tendencies? You know, there seems to be a genetic disposition, for example, for whether you believe in God or something more spiritual that's out there, or whether it's kind of more circumstantial that she's facing events around her, uh, there are circumstances, things which have happened to her. How would you kind of drill into the root causes before then we can start to address the remedies? Well, the research suggests that about 50% of happiness levels are genetically determined. And that's pretty much hardwired. And we see that in the world. Some people are just naturally at a higher place on the one to 10 scale than other people. Then about 15 to 20% is what's called life circumstances. So that's things like health, education, marital status, occupation. And then um, all the rest is very much influenced by our conscious thoughts and actions. And so that's really where we can take action in our own lives is in that part. Um, So I think a helpful way to think about it is that we all have a range. So my natural range might be four to seven. Your natural range might be seven to 10. But each of us could do things within our conscious thoughts and actions that would help lift us to the top of our natural range or press us to the bottom of our natural range. And so I think that's what each of us wants to do is to say, well, given my nature and my circumstances, which I have some control over in some ways, but in other ways I don't have control over, what can I do in my own life to be as happy as I can be? And, you know, there are times in our lives where we wouldn't seek to be happy. If my mother's in the hospital, very sick, I'm not happy about that. And I wouldn't, think it would be appropriate to try to be happy. Often negative emotions are really important signals that something in our life needs to be addressed and fixed. Something in our society needs to be addressed or fixed. So negative emotions are really important. It's not like a happy life would be a life with no negative emotions. But even with that, we would want to be as happy as we can be. And given what we know about genetics, and something I've been looking into quite a lot, the kind of epigenetics that you might have, say with diabetes, you might have a predisposition to diabetes, but if you eat a certain way and exercise a certain way, those genes don't express themselves, so you don't end up with diabetes. Do we think the same is sort of true around people who might have a disposition to being a little bit miserable, that they can deactivate those genes, even if perhaps they have been clicked on by circumstance? Well, that's a genetic question. Um, So I don't know, but the genetics of it, like uh, the, uh, I mean, that would have to do with, you know, the uterine environment before you're born. Certainly those, those influences are real with things like anxiety, vigilance, that's very much influenced by it. You know, I'm not that interested in things that we can't control. So I don't, I don't think about things like genetics or like brain scans because I'm like, I don't know what's going on with my brain. Like I want to do something that I can affect. So I'm always thinking about the concrete things that we can do with our own actions. I don't even usually even think about thoughts because some people are like, I need to be more optimistic. 
it's hard to change your thoughts, but it's quite straightforward to change your thoughts and actions. And so I like to focus on that because I feel like that's something that's very much within our everyday powers to control. Okay. So let's focus on the, I guess, the basic building blocks that we, our case study, would need to to lift her happiness levels. Well, you know, ancient philosophers and contemporary scientists agree that if you had to pick the secret to happiness, you would think about relationships. To be happy, we have to have enduring intimate bonds. We need to feel like we belong. We need to be able to confide. Uh, We need to be able to get support. And just as support for happiness, we need to be able to give support. So if I were talking to Jane, I might say, well, what's going on with your relationship? So you said she's married. She has two kids. But maybe she's feeling very disengaged with friends. Maybe she's not spending any time with friends. That's a different kind of relationship. And people will often feel lonely for friends. Some people want a best friend. Some people want a friend group. Some people like to have lots of people to make plans with. So it's different for different people. But that might be someplace to start. Maybe that's what is kind of dragging her down is the absence of that kind of friendship. Or maybe there's a lot of conflict at home or she doesn't have a feeling of tenderness and engagement at home. Well, there's a lot of concrete things that you can do to try to boost a feeling of kind of attentiveness and connection within your own roof. I wrote a book called Happier at Home. And that was one of the big things that I focused on was just the relationships within my own household. There's little things I, you know, feeling connected to your kind of family of origin. My family um, does, we talk about this on the Happier podcast, my podcast that I do with my sister. My sister and, my, my, and our parents do this thing called Update, where every, I don't know, five days, every week, we send, the four of us send each other an email called Update. And the motto of Update is, it's okay to be boring. And we literally write the most boring things that are going on in our lives. Like my mother will be like, I'm going to get my hair colored or, you know, this old neighbor bought a house or, you know, it's just the most mundane details. Because what I found is that when we exchange all these little details, we feel much more connected to each other. And then when we do talk or we do see each other, we have a lot more to say to each other because everybody's noticed that when you see people all the time, you have a ton to talk about. And when you see people rarely, counterintuitively, perhaps, it's hard to talk. And so there are lots of little things that you can do to boost the relationships. Three quick steps from our sponsors, Karmacist. One, take botanicals like saffron we've turned to for centuries. Two, use cutting-edge nutrigenomics to explore how these herbs and spices can affect us deep, deep down. Three, create utterly unique formulations for mood, immunity, energy, and relaxation. Check them out at karmacist.com, which I suppose technically is a fourth step. But they're paying for the show, so who's arguing? And in terms of your physical environment, how much of a difference does that make? Being out in nature, I'm intrigued by the research you seem to be doing around senses and the stimulation that we might need on a sensory level. How, How does all that play into happiness? Well, I'm absolutely fascinated, like as you say, about the role of the senses. And I, it's just the most delightful and exciting and, and kind of invigorating thing um, is to explore your senses. And so if someone is feeling like the way I was often feeling, kind of numbed out or uh, at very absent-minded, that's how it felt for me. I just felt kind of very absent-minded. I, and then I realized, I, I don't think I'm absent-minded. I think I'm absent-bodied. I think I'm just kind of like in my head all the time. There is nothing like fresh towels or rubbing your hand over velvet or corduroy or sandpaper or sheepskin. You mentioned going outside, going to nature. 
sunlight. There's absolutely fascinating research going on now with sunlight. There is so much more happening in our bodies that is triggered by being in the sunlight than, I mean, it's just fascinating. It's very important for setting our circadian rhythm and for helping our bodies stay synchronized. And so if you can go outside into the sunlight, especially if you can go out in the early morning light, that is really helps you with energy and focus. Our bodies, our brains have been designed to be in motion. If you feel low, if you need a quick pick-me-up, doing something like going for a 20-minute walk outside where you're in the fresh air, you have the light in your face, you're getting that motion in your body, that will really give you that charge. It will give you that boost if you feel like you need a kind of a quick jolt. This is very much sort of focused on the kind of practical things you can do, the kind of routine, the daily routine, the kind of relationships being nurtured, what you're doing with your body, awakening your senses. You you really aren't saying this is about changing your mindset, not that kind of classic therapeutic route of I've got these negative thought patterns. I need to try and change those. Maybe I need to work on my expectations. They're too out of kilter with how I live. Yours is not being focused in the head. You know, I just myself find that very frustrating kind of work to do. I I don't say that it's not worthwhile or that other people don't find it helpful. It just, to me, it feels very kind of indirect and, and frustrating. So I prefer to work through actions. But, you know, one of the things that I found in my study of happiness is there is no magic one-size-fits-all solution. There's no one right way. There's no one best way, no more efficient way. Every tool is not for every person. And so I think one of the things is to experiment and see what works for you and also try out different vocabulary. Like, I think for some people, uh, the journey is a very powerful metaphor. I have never really liked the journey metaphor, but then I did a happiness project and a lot of people are like, Ooh, that sounds like homework. I don't want to do a happiness project. I'm like, great. To me, that sounds really appealing, but it's not a metaphor that appeals to you. So fine. And I think for some people, they really do want to kind of think about their expectations or, you know, uh, social comparison, things like that. It could be a very useful uh, approach for someone. It doesn't, it's not the way that appeals to me. So I kind of focus on a different set of tools in my toolbox. Um, But a lot of times people, you know, we use many tools. Um, But I also think it's worth remembering that if something doesn't work for you, you don't have to say, well, there's something wrong with me. This works for my sister-in-law. Why doesn't it work for me? There must be something wrong with me. I should keep trying and trying and trying it. It's more to say like, well, that's interesting. I've learned something about myself. This, this approach worked really well for one person. I tried it. It's not working for me. So what else can I try? Because what I've noticed is, you know, we all might have an aim and we all might take a different route to get to that aim, but we can all get to that aim even if we use different methods to get there. I guess as well... This moment provides an opportunity to really take stock. And, you know, we were saying that at the beginning, you might sort of check in and see what your happiness levels are. If our case study checks in and she thinks, actually, you know, I've not been feeling great for a long time, maybe this is a moment for radical change. Do you sense that this is the time for perhaps more radical change in your life? You know, that's a great question. And I think that it's really worth thinking about. And I agree. I've seen many people sort of having moments of reevaluation. I think many people whose lives were very hectic 
are questioning whether they want to return to kind of the same level of activity, kind of the freneticness of it. Do they want to cut back? People who travel a lot are wondering whether they could cut back on their travel. Uh, interestingly, I happen to know a lot of 20 and 30 year olds who went home to shelter in place with their parents. It's kind of like instead of living in their studio apartment in New York City, they went back to their suburban house in Alabama or Pennsylvania or whatever and stayed with their parents. And for a lot of people, sort of being back in their family of origin, maybe even being back in their in their childhood bedroom has led to kind of a lot of deep thinking about where is my life? You know, what are my dreams? You know, where am I going? So there is a lot. There's a lot of kind of big self-reflection going on right now. But I always wonder about making a big radical change under very extreme circumstances. Obviously, sometimes this is necessary. If you're going to take a big, big financial hit, you might want to get right in front of that and make a big dramatic change. You might be like, you know what, I'm going to go back and live with my parents. And that's just going to give me a lot more freedom and opportunity in the long run. And so I'm just going to go ahead and do that as soon as I can and get the benefit of it. But for bigger decisions, I feel, at least for me, I think that there's so much uncertainty now as to how everything's going to play out. I think sometimes people want to create a feeling of certainty by controlling what they can control. So I can't control the virus, but I can control X, Y, Z thing. Well, sometimes that's useful, but you don't want to make a huge change in your life if you can't really foresee the consequences. Gretchen, I'd like to uh, end with a couple of quickfire questions. Um, this is Brilliant Brains. Who is your brilliant brain? Who do you most admire? Who do you have on a kind of pedestal? Oh, so many. I love so many brilliant minds, but I would say that Samuel Johnson is probably one of mine that I return to over and over. It's funny because I will often read some like, you know, big body of scientific research and I'll think, you know, Samuel Johnson, he, he summed that up in a sentence. Um, you know, he had that insight a long time ago. So I really love Samuel Johnson. And uh, question, Ruben, I'm, I'm making you global dictator. You're you have a, a mission to improve people's level of happiness. What is the first act that you're going to introduce? Oh, so many things come to mind. I, it would be something about relationships, but I'd, I would have to think very carefully about it. If I'm a global dictator, I have to think that through. So it'd be something about relationships, though. <laughs> Maybe mandating a, a date night once a week or a kind of friends gathering. Or... I don't know. I mean, my husband and I, we are not date night people. That would not work for us. So again, it's there is no magic one size fits all solution. So it'd be it's hard to be the global dictator of happiness. Um, exercise, getting a little bit more exercise. That's probably that's probably would work for just about everyone. Gretchen Rubin, thank you very much. And your new book is going to be, is it going to be on senses? Yes, it's on the body and the senses, how to get to the mind through the body. No title yet. If you have any ideas for titles, send them to me. Thanks to Gretchen Rubin. To hear all 12 episodes of Brilliant Brains, including Harvard scientist Dr. David Sinclair, explain why aging is optional and what he does to stop the body growing old, go to karmacist.com. Com, home of our sponsor. Thanks also to Nature Boy for the music and producer Tess Davidson. From me, Tim Samuels, that's this episode of Brilliant Brains. Mm-hmm.